Good morning. Well, I couldn't think of as snappy a title uh, this morning as I did for last week. I hope you're still thinking about barnacles on the bottom of your boat. But uh, here's the question. This is lesson five in the series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? The question is, why do good people disagree on how to do church? This past week, I've been involved in several different prayer meetings with, uh, with several different groups of people, and, uh, and many, many very fine uh, Bible-believing believers, but a very wide swath in terms of how do you do church. And, and so I, I, I thought as I was approaching this that there's perhaps the danger of me coming across as, as saying... We're doing it right, and everybody else is doing it wrong, and they ought to get their act together. I mean, it could come across that way. So how do we explain our differences? And and, uh, I'd like to suggest some things that we ought to keep in mind as we think of brothers and sisters who do church differently than we do, but who love our Lord Jesus Christ and who love his word and want to be obedient to it. By the way, in your notes, you will notice, or I should say, you won't notice, but you'll see it on the screen, that I smuggled some a point in between there that I'll add as we go along. The first, I think, thing to say about those who disagree with us is that there are things that are matters of personal conviction. There are matters of liberty, even amongst church that, churches that would hold to the same principles that we would hold. Uh, there is going to be liberty in how you go about uh, doing certain things. And so some of our differences are just differences in conviction. Um, and we have to acknowledge that to be so. I think the other thing that we need to say is that some truths are more crucial than others, even though they may both be true. And, and, and you may say then, this isn't really an area of conviction. It is an area of truth. But some truths may hold a higher level of importance than other truths. A classic instance would be the Reformation. I mentioned, uh, maybe too often, but uh, the fact that the Reformers, while they were very adamant about the authority of Scripture over the authority of men and the uh, doctrine of justification by faith rather than by works, Uh, that the Reformers didn't do a lot of cleanup when it came to ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And and let me just say at this moment in time, bully for them. (laughs) They picked the right things. As somebody used to say, I don't think I'm going to go to the wall for that one. You do go to the wall for justification by faith. You do go to the wall for the sufficiency and authority of Scripture and not the edicts and decrees of men. So some truths are more important than other truths. And while I believe what we're teaching about the church to be true, I would not want to make compromises in the doctrine of justification. I can live more easily with with differences in areas that don't determine one's eternal destiny. Thirdly, It's not just about the right forms and the right terms. That is an element in it, but it is not everything. And a great part 
of what we need to understand about the New Testament church is that we have New Testament heart attitudes. And it is possible, by the way, that's the subject of my next lesson uh, next week. But it is possible that somebody who doesn't follow the precise forms or use the exact terminology that we would use may, because they have the right heart, do a better job functionally than somebody else who has all the right kinds of forms and whatever. Classic case would be the scribes and Pharisees. They had the forms down, but they sure didn't have the heart part down. And therefore, they fell under condemnation by our Lord. Fourth, here's my insert. You'll see it on the screen, I hope, if I did it right, but you won't see it on your notes. Fourth, we all have strengths and weaknesses. When when you think about spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are given to the body so that one person in their strength may minister to others in their weakness. But there's an interdependence that comes about in that process so the body ministers to itself. When you come to the doctrine of the church, if we would grant ourselves the luxury of assuming it or at least hoping for it, if it were true that we were uh, perhaps more accurate in our understanding of the church than some others might be, if that's our strong point, to put it in those terms, we have our weak points too. And it may very well be, in fact, I am sure that it is true, that those churches with whom we may disagree about how to do church may be stronger in some areas of living the Christian life and going about the ministry of our Lord than we are. And so it would not do us well to somehow puff up our chest and say, we've got it right, these poor other people, they've got it wrong, because they could just as easily say, "Um, this church over here, it's good on the cognitive part, it's good on the cerebral part, good on the ecclesiological part, but man, they're not doing very much on evangelism, for example. So we need to think about that. And last... The purpose, I think, of this series is not to say we've got it right and everybody else is wrong. The purpose of this series is to explain to people, many of whom are new to our body or who have not been here in the times that we've taught about the church, to say this is what we believe about church. This is how we do church and for you to understand that. And in this message to say here's how we handle scriptures so that this is our conclusion. So this message is really about, here's our approach to dealing with the Scriptures that leads to this output, if you would, of here's how we go about church. So it's just trying to explain to you what we believe and how we got there. And it's possible that someone may say, that's not for me. It is possible, and, and the, at least we've been honest with you, and you get your, your chance to hear our story, and, and you find the church down the street is really the place you need to be. That's okay. That's all right. But it's also possible that you may say, you know what, I think that's right. I think I'm going to stick with that, uh, and hopefully there will be some of you in that category. So how are we going to go about this message? What I want to do is to talk about uh, several elements 
in, in how we handle the scriptures that leads, in, in my opinion, to the, the mandate for the way in which we do church. The first area is going to be that of biblical doctrine. Second will be that of biblical principle. Thirdly, that of biblical command. Fourthly, that of biblical example of the things we see practiced by the church or practiced by the apostles in the New Testament. And then, uh, fifthly, I want to talk about uh, where we fail. Because when I set down these standards, the, the problem with doing that is saying, if all of these things line up, then we ought to be doing whatever that is, that 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 biblical doctrine uh, underscores, that uh, biblical commands and principles tell us what to do, and biblical practices, you sure should, because we did it. it. You know, how do we handle those things that we don't do when they fall in that category? And I may have a confession or two for you there. And, and then finally, uh, some words of conclusion and application uh, for us as a church. So let's go to doctrine first. And I, I, I was tempted. I love to save the, the, the very finest part for last. And if I can be an Alfred Hitchcock to spring it on you, sort of unprepared. But I'm, I'm going to just tell you that the, that the goodies are, are going to come out right out front. This, for me, was, was strangely uh, something that caught me off guard, and I can't even tell you exactly why. And that is that doctrine is really the foundation for all practice. Now, I know you see that in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the doctrine and, and practice 4, 5, and 6, and you see it in Romans and, and elsewhere. But somehow I had not really made that connection with the New Testament church. And, and I've, there, there were times when I've said, for instance, of some of the commands of Scripture that they actually were arbitrary, that God arbitrarily said, you can eat this or you can't eat that. I have to tell you, my list of arbitrary commands is getting smaller and smaller, and I'm not sure that I can find one now. Because it seems to me when I look at these things that pertain to the church, there is a, there is a doctrinal truth, there is a reality that underlies the commands and the principles and the practices of the New Testament uh, churches and their leaders that we must uh, take into account. Let me see if I can illustrate that. When you come to the account of a creation in, in Genesis 1 and 2, it is not until after God has acted, and I'm talking about the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and, and the at least half of the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, that what I discover in that is that God does everything well. And God saw it, and behold, it was good. That God does it over time and over a process, and he does it by separating one thing from another. And in Genesis chapter 2, the way the creation account is presented, it is though there is some need that is there. Uh, there was no rain, or, or whatever it might be, and there are rivers. Or there was a garden, but no man to care for it. Or there was a man, that's later in chapter 2, I know, but here is a man, and he has just given the names for all these animals and their mates, but he has no mate, and so God supplies every need. I find it interesting in the context of all of that, 
description of God and what he has done well, that then God says to Adam, this tree you are not to partake of. Because what has to happen is you have to trust that God does everything well. You see what I'm saying? The command doesn't come out of nowhere. The command comes out of a creative God who does everything well and who meets every need, every legitimate need. Therefore, when Satan comes along and seeks to create a need for that forbidden fruit and what it offers, it's wrong. That's just one illustration. Look at the Exodus. When you come to the Exodus, in the early verses of Exodus 19, where they're gathered there at Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai, when you come to Exodus chapter 20, God says, in effect, look at what I did for you. God doesn't give the Ten Commandments and the law in Egypt before they leave. And to say, here are all these laws, this is the way it's going to be. God saves Israel. And on the basis of that salvation, he now says, I am your king. As a matter of fact, remember in Exodus chapter 15, when they've just come through the the Red Sea and they sing that song of praise, in effect what they're saying is, God is our king, Exodus 15. Exodus 19 and 20, God says, since I am your king, here's the way you ought to conduct yourself. Here's the way in which we will relate one to another. When you come to the commandments that pertain to idolatry, I'm thinking particularly here of Deuteronomy 4, but you could look elsewhere. Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it's talking about not creating uh, images of God, not making idols. What does God say? He said, when you were there on the mountain... And when you beheld my glory, you saw the smoke, you saw all the stuff, you heard the, 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 the trumpet blasts and all that, but you didn't see me. You didn't see anything in the sense that man could not see God. Now, that's the fundamental doctrinal reality. It's about the nature of God. He is invisible. Based upon the nature of God, he says, how then could you create an idol? How do you create an idol of something you cannot see? It doesn't, it doesn't fit. So the command is rooted in doctrinal truth about the nature of God. And I would say to you that that's really true, Old Testament and New, that the commands and, and the examples of, of obedience of people is rooted in the theological truths that the Word of God has set forth. So when you come to the New Testament, then you come to uh, the same scenario. For example, when you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. By the way, I chose not to put all the biblical text on the screen, and I'll tell you why. My wife said, I don't like it when people don't have to turn in their Bibles. It kind of sounds good to hear the rustle of pages, so uh, that's kind of why it's not there. Besides that, I'm lazy and it's easier not to do it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about laying the foundation as an apostle. He lays the foundation. How do you do that? You do that by declaring doctrinal truth. In Ephesians, you see the same basic thing in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It is the apostle's doctrine 
the, the ministry of the apostles who set down doctrinal truth, that is the foundation for the church and for its practice. So then you come to examples of that. And, and what I'm going to do, I'm not going to go into these in detail because... In future messages, I'm going to simply play out some of the fundamental elements of a New Testament church and start with the doctrinal reality and build on that from uh, command and precept or principle and so on. But you have Christ is the head of the church. Now, that's something that the New Testament makes crystal clear. But if he is the head of the church, does it not make sense that when the church gathers... And in the way in which the church goes about its ministry, does it not make sense to you that somehow people at church ought to say, whoa, men aren't really the head of this church. That's part of the reason why the meeting takes place as it does on Sunday morning. We could tell everybody what to do and what to say, but the Spirit of God is here and He directs the things that take place within our body, or we hope that will be the case. The church is the body of Christ, uh, just one instance of that in Colossians chapter 1. If we are the body of Christ, then we are the representation of him. How, the scriptures will say, how can we go about as members of the body of Christ and do things which as members of his body makes him a participant in that? Specifically, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 6, where you have immorality. And he says, if you're part of the body of Christ, how can you, how can you do these things in your body, realizing what your body is? Now, that's sort of overlaid on the, the, the doctrine of the temple, because we are his temple, and the holy God dwells within us. And so Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we ought to be very careful as the temples of God, what it is that we do or do not do. Practice comes out of fundamental reality. Or finally, the example of the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 2. God has brought Jews and Gentiles together. He has reconciled them through the blood of Jesus Christ, through those texts that we were talking about this morning in our worship time. And then in verses 11 and following, it talks about how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together. The wall and the barrier that separated them has been torn down. Now they are one new man. Now they are one new building. And so when you see in Galatians, uh, Paul observing Peter and then Barnabas uh, separating themselves to the Jewish table and the Gentile table, folks, it can't be. Why does Paul get so worked up about it? Because the way we practice ought to be reflective of the truth that underlies it. So you can't segregate yourselves and somehow be consistent with the teaching of the scriptures about the nature of the church. New Testament principle, uh, next category. You've got a number of of, uh, principles. Now, these are going to be more general directives that will have a a more general kind of application, but still are are true. The principle of order, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, after Paul has, has talked about the way in which the meeting is to go about, everything is to be done decently and in an orderly way. Trust me, the way they were observing communion in chapter 11 was not decent and it was not orderly. It was revelry. And so there is that principle that ought to characterize the church. Chaos is not what 
the church ought to look like because it is God's cosmos, his creation. The principle of proportion. Let two, Paul says, or no more than three speak. Now, we could get really legalistic about that, I suppose, and have our, our counter, you know, up there on the, on the board, the red letters, and, and one guy gets up and it's one, and then you got two, and, and, you know, we could be that way. But the point of it all is there needs to be a sense of proportion in what we do. There are many things that need to take place. We, almost every week, we call attention to the program, but we, I'm going I'm to do an aside here. I know people talk about we need a spirit-led meeting. I'm telling you, folks, you want a spirit-led meeting, tear that clock off the wall. If you're somewhere else in the world, you can go as long as you want. When you're talking about the roast burning in the oven and you won't pass till 12.01, then, then, then you have to say, the spirit's going to lead, but it's got to be within the confines of that clock. So... On Sunday morning, if prayer is an important thing to do, then we need to say to people, there is a time set aside for prayer, and it is not right to, in a consistent kind of way, maybe there are exceptions from one week or another, but in a consistent kind of way, we need to be doing all of the things he has given us to do. The principle of proportion says enough is enough, which includes preaching. So I move to my next point. The principle of edification There he's saying over and over again that what we ought to do ought to be governed by does this edify the other person? Now that's not just in the context of the church. When Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, he grants the assumption for the moment that they can actually do it. Chapter 10 is going to make it clear they can't. But he grants the assumption they can do it. And what he says is, if you exercise your liberty and it causes your brother to stumble, you are not edifying your brother. The way in which we act in the church, the way in which we conduct our lives, has a direct bearing upon the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. And we ought to govern our conduct by that which builds people up, not which tears people down. Principle of male leadership, uh, and we'll go into that uh, later, but there again, the scriptures are clear, and it, it comes out of the basis that it is Christ who is the head of the church, it is the man who represents his headship in the church, and in particular in its meeting. Uh, the principle of stewardship, and, and now it's based upon this fact, is it not, that whatever we have... We have received spiritual gifts are gifts that have been given by God. Financial and and physical resources are those things that have been given to God. Therefore, we can't boast about them, and we ought to use them well. So you have 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's it's required of a steward that he be found faithful. 1 Peter chapter 4, that we are to exercise our gifts as stewards of the grace of God principle of stewardship, uh, a general guiding principle. The principles of submission, and I'm going to mix in the next one, the seventh one, the principle of servanthood. Those are governing principles and those are attitudes, heart attitudes that ought to characterize the church. And they are rooted in who Jesus is, my friend. Philippians chapter 2. Or uh, Colossians chapter 1 or, or over and over again in the New Testament. It's because this is what Jesus is. First Peter chapter 2. Peter's talking to slaves. And he says, there's no virtue in your suffering. 
if you're suffering for stealing, there's only virtue in suffering when you're innocent. And then he says, isn't that the example set by our Lord, who when reviled did not revile again? In other words, Christ is the pattern. The doctrinal truths pertaining to who he is and what he did is to govern us in what we are and what we do. Could get excited about that. The principle of universality. Try this on for size. I made a point of this a message or two ago that, that Paul consistently says, these are the things that I teach not only here in this church, but in every church. I'm going to send Timothy to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to send Timothy. He's going to teach you my ways, as also I teach and we do in every church, as in all the churches of the saints, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, over and over again. Now, here's my point. How do we differ from other people uh, who are fine uh, Christians in many regards? How do we, why do we differ in, in this matter of, of how you do church? Because I believe that if indeed Paul's teaching is universal, and by that I mean that at his, at his point in time, it doesn't matter whether his church is in Africa. It doesn't matter whether the church is in Europe, or if it could be a church in North America. The principles... And the practices and the commands and the underlying doctrinal truths from which they, they grow, it, it's the same regardless of where you go. Is that not right? And, and if it's true at that moment in time when you start looking at places, then why is it not true in relationship to time as well? In other words, if it was true for the church in Corinth, then is it not true for the church in Dallas now? If all truth is universal, if God does not change and all these theological truths do not change, then why do we expect that they did it this way back then and now we do it totally differently? Why? That I do not understand. Now, I'm not saying every particular little piece of the practice, if they didn't play trumpets or play drums in those days, that somehow, uh, you know, we can't do it today. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in terms of the commands and the principles that direct us. Those are just as applicable today as they were in yesteryear. And, and I'm not sure that everybody really believes that. Okay, here's an observation. Principles clarify commands. When you look at the Sabbath controversy in the New Testament, I think it's true that the scribes and the Pharisees went beyond the law. But I think it's also true that, that there would be a sense in which one could say a man carrying his mattress on the Sabbath technically broke the Sabbath. And what Jesus said is, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or not? In other words, remember when he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's a principle which says to us, and, and, and our Lord points out their inconsistency, if your ox fell in the ditch, you wouldn't worry about working. You'd break a sweat getting him out. Why? Because the animal's suffering. If nothing else, because I'm going to lose money if I let him die. But whatever the motivation, you say to yourself, I understand the general principle but in this circumstance, it probably is best to help the ox. And he says, remember, the priests, they minister uh, on the Sabbath. So when you understand the general principle, it may help you with the particulars not to get too legalistic. And so uh, principles help us with particulars, as I understand it. Commands. 
and I'm going to start with an observation. Now, this sounds strange. I said principles help us in understanding commands. Commands help us to understand principles. Now, think about that. Here you have this, this, this command in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul is trying to justify his right to be supported in his ministry and other uh, others, apostles and whatever who do so. And he says, look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament says, don't muzzle the ox while it treads the corn, while it treads the grain, while it's threshing. He says, does God really care about oxen? Well, yeah, he really does. But what he's saying is, it isn't just about oxen. There is a principle in that law. And when you look at the Old Testament laws carefully, what you discover is that there are general principles that are very helpful to us. If you, for, if you don't have a pair of, well, let me give you an example. You see that glass all the way around here. We didn't legally have to put that glass up here. But we said to ourselves, you know what? Some little kid's going to tumble over the top of that. We need a safety rail. So we put it up. And partly you would go to the Old Testament and say, if you don't put a safety rail up or you dig a pit and you don't put yellow tape or something around it to say, watch out, and somebody falls in, you're responsible for that. So the Old Testament commands give us general principles that help us understand the heart of what's going on. And so I think it is true when we look at at commands in the scriptures, we have to say, what are the principles here and how does that help me? So here are some commands. And by the way, notice these commands, and I don't have time to go into this, but notice how these commands are rooted in theological and doctrinal reality. Be ye holy. What's the rest of that? For I am holy. Now you have the theological base. Here's God who is holy. What does that imply and what does that require for us? Holiness for us. So one is related to the other. Doctrinal truth is related to biblical command. Accept one another even as God has accepted you in Christ. So the reality of the gospel is what dictates the reality of our experience, and no wonder the command is found there. Don't show favoritism. Uh, you could find uh, where, where Paul says uh, God has chosen the weak things of this world and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and so on. God doesn't show favoritism. If that's true, then James says when the church gathers, how come you put the rich guy in a fancy seat and you put the poor guy on the floor? It isn't consistent with the way God deals. So reality dictates command and practice. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Hebrews chapter 10. The silence of women in the church. By the way, you could go back and look at texts like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And again, it always goes back. In creation, what was the order? Who was created first? Who was created for whom? Who was created from whom? It's that reality, in fact, that dictates the commands that are given to us, I believe. Don't impose your convictions or debate about them. Why? Because we are all his servants, and it's required as servants to answer to their master. Servants don't judge servants. Once you understand who you are, then you understand better how you are to behave. Apostolic example. Uh, Both personal 
what Paul does and what the church collectively does as we see in the New Testament. You just see, for example, Acts chapter 20 in that, in that message to the Ephesian elders. Paul is talking about himself. I didn't withhold anything from you that you needed to learn. His example in teaching all of the scriptures to them. His example in warning them with tears that there are, there's going to be those who are raised up who are teaching falsehood to attract men after themselves. Uh, Paul was concerned about false teachers. We ought to be concerned about them too. Uh, late in Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about his practice with money. I didn't desire, I didn't seek after men's silver and gold, but rather I worked with my own hands. That principle, Paul will say, is applicable to us as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 and 17, my key verse. Going to send Timothy. He's going to teach you my ways as I teach everywhere in every church. Apostolic practice parallels apostolic teaching, and it's universally applicable within the churches of our Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I guess you could put chapter 9. Here, the example of the Macedonian churches in their generosity in giving is instructive for us. And therefore, Paul says to the other churches, look at them and learn from their example. Be motivated to follow in their footsteps as they've done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul talks about the way the gospel came to them and the way in which he behaved. And he says, not only did you embrace that for yourselves, but now as you take the gospel, you're, you're following that example and other people are now looking at your example as you looked at mine. And then Acts uh, chapter 2, Acts chapter 20, the gathering together of the saints, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we see that the saints gathered weekly. Uh, Yes, it is true that uh, in the beginning days in Acts chapter 2, they broke bread daily. Breaking bread speaks, number one, of eating a meal, and it seems to often imply, in, in conjunction with that, the observance of the Lord's Supper. When somebody says, as somebody said when I was in seminary, uh, uh, they observed it daily, they observed it weekly, some people do quarterly or annually. No, wait, the quarterly and the annually isn't in there. The daily and the weekly is. Take your pick. (laughs) But don't tell me that apostolic practice gives you the uh, the annual option. And there are other principles we'll get to that would surely point to something otherwise. Where does the rubber meet the road? It seems to me that when you put together doctrinal reality, doctrinal truth, and you add to that uh, a biblical principle, biblical command, and biblical practice, that is, what the church did. When you put all those three together, all those together, and they're in alignment, does that not say strongly to you, I think we ought to be doing this? I mean, that's one of the things that distinguishes us is we believe that when you take all these elements, that it's just telling us that's the way to go about it. Now, other people may have a different approach, and that's, that's between them and the Lord, but that's the way we understand it. That's why we get to our bottom line and why we do things uh, the way we do, or at least we hope that is the case. Examples of freedom. When you look at foot washing, for example, in John chapter 13, Jesus says, I'm doing this, I'm setting an example for you, uh, and so on, and, and you're saying, hmm, hmm, what do we do about that? Well, 
uh, one, it's not, it's not really a bad thing to do. Uh, when we had the, the, the conference for Muslim background believers, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, non-Muslims washed the feet of the Muslim believers. It's a wonderful thing to do symbolically. But what we don't see is a universal apostolic command in, in the, after the Gospels in, in the book of Acts or in the epistles. We don't see a command given anymore and we don't see it practiced anymore. Now, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is, I've given you an example of humility. And the example of humility ought to be raising questions in our mind and we're saying, in what ways could I wash this believer's feet? In, in a metaphorical way, okay? Fine, you can wash them in a physical way too. But the real point, my friend, is not just getting clean feet, is it? I mean, it helps sometimes, but, but it, it, it's really not about clean feet. It's about serving and putting other people ahead of ourselves. And so the principle ought to be important to us, and we ought to seek ways to do it. And not just say, well, they did it then, but we don't do it now. If it's done then, it was done for a reason. We ought to explore those reasons, and we ought to try to put those into practice. Selling everything and giving to the church. <laughs> oh, there's some guys out there that are still hawking this one. You know, there they did it in the scriptures. You just bring that old money in and you just lay it at my feet and trust me. I wonder about that. And, and all I would say is go to Acts chapter 5. What does Peter say to Ananias? He says, look, well, this was yours, right? You could do anything you wanted with it, right? You could keep a part of it, Right? You didn't have to do it, man. But what you couldn't do was lie. So when I look at that and I look at the New Testament, yes, I see everything we've been given has been given to us as a stewardship. And generosity is a wonderful thing to be practicing. But I don't think that I have to come away saying, man, it's important for me to sell everything I got, bring it here and drop it on the elders. I don't think that's what it's saying. So it seems to me that following our guidelines, we have some freedom there. More troubling text. Let me just say this momentarily. One would be the head covering question of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul seems to be pretty clear there. What troubles me is this, and I'm going to get down to the agony part uh, at the the next note, and that is when we're not doing what we should. Okay, let me throw in the other one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Five times, commanded, five times. Interestingly, always at the end of the epistle, wherever it's found, always at the end of the epistle. So when you have that command, then you, 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 don't you think that you at least got to take a long look at that? And here's my list of, of things to say about that. When we don't find ourselves in compliance, A, agonize about it. I'm serious. Agonize about it. They did this in the New Testament. Why aren't we doing it? We ought to think about it. Not just blow it off and say, that's ridiculous. They did that then, we do this now. It's, what's, what's the difference? There is, a, there is something about it that we ought to look at. It's there in the Bible, and it's there to say something to us. Let's agonize. Two, uh, don't ignore the text. Study it. Look, don't just put that text in one of those, oh, no, not this thing, and just set it aside, and we just look the other way. 
make that text a serious issue of consideration. And so, as I've said before, I don't agonize nearly as much about people who come to a text, seriously study it, and come to a different conclusion than I do. What bothers me is people that just throw it away and don't consider it at all. That troubles me. Thirdly, question our motives. Why am I not doing this? Why am I not doing this? Why why am I not greeting one another with a holy kiss? Well, I I can tell you one, because holy kisses and Hollywood kisses aren't the same. And we're not talking about pucker up. I mean, you know, I'm not going to lay one on, on, on somebody else's lips. You know, that's just not right. But that's not what they were doing. And, and, and so I ought to ask myself, you know, what about this? What are my motives for not doing it? Now, there may be good motives because it may be that the appearances in our culture are just so loaded that, that it's just something we ought not to do. If that's true, we still ought to strive for the ideal and we ought to find some way to exercise the principle, to follow the principle. In other words, let's find a practice that implements the principle in a way people understand. This is what they do, and this is why they do it. What bothers me is when people come to difficult texts, they just chuck the text aside, and they don't, they don't agonize about, okay, what is it I should do about that? How should I follow through with that principle? Now, I'm going to go back to the holy kiss for one minute. There are a couple of men in this church who do that. By the way, I am talking about men to men and women to women. In Indonesia they have what they call, I call, the missed me kiss. And, and if, it, it, it's, not, it's not for everybody. You've got to be there for a while and be a little bit on the inside. But it's like, you know, and I want to say, missed me. <laughs> that is the point. You're not supposed to make connection. But what it says is, we love you. We embrace you as brother and sister. So in some way, we need to come to terms and to say, why are we doing this? It's a command. Uh, I take it it's a practice, although it's certainly not prominent. But why don't we just look at that and say, you know what? We ought to be thinking about that. Boy, I'm going to hit the back door when I leave today. (laughs) Either that or get the mouth spray. But these are things that I think we need to take seriously. Last. Conclusion. This really underscores for me, this message for me has said, Bible doctrine is really important. If Bible doctrine is the baseline, if it is the foundation for the church and its practice, then folks, we better know it. We better know Bible doctrine well. Because it all starts there. And it struck me as I was thinking about this, what a great way to get people going down the wrong bunny trails. Just change the doctrine. You know, somebody may say, well, yeah, you know, this doctrine, well, we could give a little bit on it. Change the foundation, folks, and it's all going to go another direction. Bible doctrine is absolutely essential, and it's linked to our practice. Now, I'm going to end uh, just by, by drawing one illustration. Our ministry group is reading C.J. Mahaney's book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. And, and I was thinking about... You know, it's really all about God. And and for us, it's really about Christ and his cross. Isn't that what Paul says? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm old Johnny one note. All I know is about Jesus and his cross. And people say, that's the problem with him. The guy never gets off that subject. You know why? 
because that's where it all starts. Now, let me just ask you this. If that's true, and we ought to be basing what we do on on the theological truths of the cross of our Lord Jesus, then I ask you this question. When we come to assess the success of the church, is the cross of Jesus not the benchmark? I mean, who cares about how big the church is or how big your building is or how small it is or whatever? Is, is the, 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 the test of success not, is the cross of Jesus Christ preached here? Is the cross of Jesus Christ practiced here? Now, let me flip it around. The cross of Jesus Christ and prayer. Think about suffering, and, and we know it's a part of the Christian life, and our prayers. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. Hmm, doesn't sound like suffering such a terrible thing. Uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings, for I'm filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 18 and following uh, to, to slaves. The virtue is to suffer innocently, not to suffer for being guilty. And then he follows up with, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did, and he provides us with the example. First Peter chapter 4, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him glorify God. Now, I'm going to talk about my prayers. I won't talk about yours. When suffering comes our way, when it's a Ruth Verseth, who I love, and Paul, or Herb Fuqua, who I care a great deal about, and Grace, or one of my own members of of my own family, do I say in my prayers, Oh, Lord, please let the doctors do this well, and please don't let it be painful, and, and please just let it go smoothly. Uh, if the cross is the standard of my life, is that really what I should pray? Or if, if there is such a thing as growing intimacy with Christ by suffering, think of Jeff Humphreys. Is the most important thing for Jeff Humphreys that he get justice in this life and he be released? Or is it for Jeff to manifest Jesus Christ in a hellhole prison so that men and women come to Jesus Christ? If indeed doctrine is the basis for practice, folks, then we had better get our doctrine straight. Why do you think we do the Lord's Supper every week? Because that reorients us to what is really true and what is really important. And so our prayers ought to be cross-centered. Our goals ought to be cross-directed. It's all about him. Not about us and not about ease and not about success. You won't be hearing about this in the elections this year, friends. You won't be hearing about this. Take up your cross, Jesus said, and follow me. That's what the New Testament church is about, following him. Father, we thank you for your word. We give thanks for many Christian 
uh, brothers and sisters who don't see it exactly the way we do and who in many cases are stronger in certain elements than we are. And we want to give thanks in particular for those believers in places where they are suffering for their faith. Thank you for using them. Thank you for the cross-centered, cross-driven lives of others. May that be true for us. Help us to know sound doctrine and help us to apply that doctrine in every area of our life, including our practice as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.